This is Paulo Rivera, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 173 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. This is Rick Furbanis, and I am your host. I have a co-host out there. He's the best gosh darn one out there, and his name is Bob Lucius. Oh, Bob. Hello, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the British accents that you regale me with, with which you regale me. I'm a stickler for proper grammar. Uh Uh, Never cease to amaze me. Uh, Never cease. (laughs) It is never cease. Um. (laughs) <laughs> I love when Martin Short goes, I was whelmed. <laughs> um, uh, so so why am I greeting you in a British hello? Uh, I, I actually did a lot of research on this one, Bob, as you mm-hmm. know, as I do for my openings to you. Mm-hmm. And I always try to tie it back into the show. And I yeah. was looking for something for British because we have a British guest on today. But uh-huh. but also I was looking for what what did the the the, the Britons st- how did they greet people in the 1940s? Because, you know, we we're talking about books from mm-hmm. that take place during World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what I came up with? Uh, hello, mate. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, I'm doing all these Google search and like, there's a few others out there. And like, it, depending on what part of England you're from, yeah. like, um, you know, they have different greetings and also uh, different, um, stations whether you're upper class middle class lower class sure yeah uh i i went with the south side london middle class oh i appreciate that thank you yeah, i'm a midland sort of guy so yeah 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 all Neither right too high nor too low yeah uh so bob this is we are almost we're on the cusp of the month of february um this comes out uh, on Wednesday, January 31st. It's the end of the month. Uh, how, how you been doing? I'm, I'm all right, man. I'm all right. Uh, man, it's been a busy month, but, uh, Hey, still here. So, you know, I'm looking forward to February. Yeah. 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 There's going to be a, uh, February 29th. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Are you? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I might want to celebrate in some way. Who knows? Oh, okay. I might get cause... crazy on February 29th. Yeah. Wear my right. pants inside out or something. I don't know. Wow. Like a wacky Wednesday sort of thing. Way to bring it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looking at uh, comic book uh, creator birthdays, um, coming up next week, uh, but it'll, it'll actually be right before our next show. So might as well just knock it out now. Uh, birthday on February 6th is uh, Rick Remender. All right. Happy birthday, Rick. Yeah. Other the, the writer to uh, Volume 7, uh, which he had the fun duty of following Ed Brubaker's two runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he, man, he we, we, we've covered his stories, a lot of his stories from Volume 7 in here. Nothing uh, less than, of course, that would have been the castaway in Dimension Z. Mm. Uh, that was a 10-part story we did, which was really, really cool. Uh, happy birthday to Rick Remender. Yeah. So, Bob, you know that that 
that late Christmas present I told you about a few weeks ago. Uh, I uh, uh, it's the um, bad dad jokes daily calendar. Ooh, and uh, and so I I I got one for you, right? Because right. every day I rip another one off. Um, and uh, I don't know. I like this one. You ready? I'm ready. I I chose it also because it uh, it it has to do with France. And we'd talk a little bit about Normandy today. So uh, I thought I thought this was a good one. So did you hear about the uh, cheese factory that exploded in France? I, I did not hear about the cheese factory that exploded in France. Oh, debris is everywhere. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. I, I got something. I got this. Oh, dad jokes. Yeah. Oh, so I got the bad dad jokes. You got dad jokes. I don't know. They're they're called uh, uh, word teasers, dad jokes. I, I haven't opened it yet. It's still sealed. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's still in its box. <laughs> Go figure. So I don't know. I might have to bust it open uh, soon because, you know, I'm, I'm teaching again. And I always like to start every class with a dad joke. Right. So get the juices flowing, you know? Uh-huh. So I, I, uh, I, I might have to flip through these and see if there's any uh, golden ones I can toss out. Sounds good. Yeah. I would look forward to that. I challenge you. Uh, I want to hear that uh, an upcoming episode. All right. Uh, you know, we got a, we got a lot going on today. Um, we're, we're bringing in Paul Jenkins uh, who is the ever renowned he's over 30 years uh writer in in the ind- comic book industry uh eisner award-winning uh writer i should say and uh he's done some marvelous things no pun intended um but you know we, we want to talk to him as captain america fans we want to talk to him about some of these uh, really cool stories uh n- you know he did th- those mythos one shots and so Captain America mythos was amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really nice. Um, you know, it'll kind of be full circle, right? Because yeah. we had uh, Paulo Rivera on the show uh, back in episode 104. So I highly encourage our listeners, if you have not listened to the Paulo Rivera uh, interview, check that out. Uh, really, really great conversation with with Paulo about Mythos Captain America. Um, and then we'll also talk with Paul about um, uh, his other Captain America work. So he did a, a series of one shots called uh, Theater of War and uh, also a, a pretty cool miniseries um, featuring uh, some Golden Age characters uh, that we'll get to as well. I think uh, the, the All Winners Squad. All Winners Squad Band of Heroes. Yeah. yeah. Great, so, great miniseries. Anyway, so uh, let's uh, let's get Paul out of the, the green room and uh, get him on the show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. With a career spanning 30 years, our guest today is a comic book writer, screenwriter, novelist, and narrative director. Among his impressive comic book credits were long runs on Hellblazer for DC Comics, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, and Wolverine for Marvel. He and artist Jay Lee were responsible for the critically acclaimed and commercially successful Marvel Knights in Humans series, for which Jenkins received an Eisner Award. Jenkins and Lee later created The Century, and Jenkins collaborated with penciler Andy Kubert on the limited series Origin, which revealed Wolverine's beginnings for the first time. The title was one of the biggest sales successes of that year for Marvel, and he later followed it up with Wolverine, The End. Captain America fans will recognize him as the writer for the Mythos series, where, along with painter Paulo Rivera, completed the series by focusing on Captain America in 2008. In addition, Jenkins wrote four of the Captain America Theater of War one-shots in 2009, America the Beautiful, A Brother in Arms, To Soldier On, and Ghosts of My Country, as well as a limited series featuring Cap in 2011, All Winner's Squad, Band of Heroes. So we're very excited to have Paul Jenkins join us today. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here with you. Now, you are unlikely to remember, but uh, I used to own a comic shop in Woodstock, Georgia, called Comic Books, Etc. And you were gracious enough to come uh, to do a signing in for Free Comic Book Day back in May 2005, and it was around the time you were finishing up Wolverine the End, and uh, we were helping you promote Revelations, which was that murder mystery with uh, mm. Humberto Ramos, uh, and which feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, so before we get into to current projects and, and chatting about your work with Captain America, um, perhaps you can share with the listeners your origin story. Uh, how did, how did a, a young punk, which is how you've co- referred to yourself, uh, living in the UK, uh, who grew up reading very few comics, become a successful industry professional here in the US? Yeah, sometimes I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, but I suppose the answer, honestly, is that I always blazed my own path in things. And um, there were two things that I think worked for me. One was that um, I was never afraid of anything. So I would hope a million miles over that I'm never been arrogant in my life, but I'm very confident in what I do. Um, and then I've spoken to a lot of people about like how I translated that into comics. Um, and it's probably that, um, I, you know, not reading a lot of comics was helpful to me, um, but living an interesting and and fulfilled life is exactly what made me successful in comics and any other medium that I've worked in um, because I could really pull from life experiences. And as long as I could describe those feelings and the things that I was interested in and really believe in the story I was telling, um, then I, then usually the stories did pretty well. And um, you know, that, that meant uh, for example, with cap, you know, that I could pull from experiences that my family had had um, experiences of friends of mine, 
Um, the other thing is, you know, yeah, I came from a pretty interesting background because, um, you know, I grew up, but my father left uh, my family when I was five. Um, and my brother and I kind of lived in pretty difficult uh, financial circumstances with my mum. And we moved around a lot. We lived on a farm. So if you actually ever read Origin of Wolverine, the very first book is all about me and my brother at the bottom of the hill uh, looking at the farm with all the lights blazing because we generally didn't have electricity most of the time. Um, So it's a pretty interesting life. And and that interesting life didn't affect me in a negative way. It was might have been challenging for some people. I, I didn't notice it. I didn't notice there was any it would seem quite normal to me. Um, but my mum is is a really interesting person. And so there would be these things like we would come home from school and my brother and I couldn't afford the bus fare. So we would always walk a couple of miles to school and, and back. And that was fine. We walked across the fields. We hung out with the foxes. We saw everything in the in the country. All of that was a story, if you see what I mean. And I remember coming home um, one night on a Friday night being tired and mum saying, all right, let's go. And she walked us up the top of the hill and put her thumb out and we hitchhiked around the south for the whole weekend we met people wherever we went stayed at their houses because we met them uh that's my mom she she pretty pretty interesting person but uh um you know that's it, there are two parts to being interesting one of them is it's a it's a curse to say may you live in interesting times so it can be challenging other times it's like man i would never have become a writer if not for my mom you know so how did you become a writer then um, so, so I fell into this in a weird way. I studied to be an actor, right? Um, and that's because when I wanted to, um, you know, when I, when I started out, I wanted to be creative, right? And I went to a boarding school. I left home when I was 11, actually, and went to this boarding school and kind of pretty much lived there. And um, at a certain point, um, when I went to college, I wanted to be an actor because I knew that I did not want to work in a bank or anything like that. I wanted to be creative and I I studied music a little bit, but um, mostly I studied film. I I found out really quickly that I enjoyed filmmaking. And so I went down to the film school and sort of worked in there for a little bit. And then I came to America to teach music and drama to learning disabled children. And I met the guys that created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and it just exploded, you know, like I was there when we were in a tiny office in in Northampton in Massachusetts and and it just blew up. Um, And because of that, we went over to, you know, I actually, Kevin Eastman, actually one of the two creators asked me, you know, he said, you're going to get a pay cut if you come over, but would you like to come over and do this comic book company with me? Because he could see that I was more in the kind of creative realm and I wasn't really hugely into like the licensing of Ninja Turtles, right? Um, and so I went and I was lucky to be an editor for Alan Moore and for Neil Gaiman and for Bill Sienkiewicz. Um, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Um, right. For, for Dave McKean and these incredible people. And during that time, um, I began to see in comics, because this is in the early 90s, right? And I felt that the standard of comics, you know, the things that you saw on the shelf, I wasn't that excited about it it felt like everything was a chromium cover and a holographic cover but it didn't necessarily follow that what was inside the book meant anything and so look at me right you know i'm I'm working with alan moore and neil gaiman and i'm re- looking at these other comic books and they just they're not what alan do, does they're not what neil does you know they just seem like they're being kind of thrown out there um and i don't mean to be too critical but i just felt that way about them so i remember being over alan moore's house Funnily enough, in Northampton, I lived in Northampton in the States and he lives in Northampton in England. 
And um, I was sitting with him. We were working on big numbers. And I, I asked him, Alan, do you think, well, I guess we got to talking about story. And a lot of the things that Alan said, I said, well, I, I know so it sounds funny, but I've been thinking that too, you know, like, what do you think, man? Maybe I should try to be a writer. And he said, I think you should give it a go. So I went down to San Diego. It's a pretty famous story. I went to San Diego and met Lou Stathis, who was the Hellblazer editor. And I said, can I try it for Hellblazer? And he asked me what I'd written. And I informed him I'd never written anything before. And next thing I knew, um, he let me try out. I don't know why he let me try out for it. Um, I do know there were about 20 to 25 people, he told me, trying out for Hellblazer to be the new writer. Warren Ellis, all kinds of people like that. Wow. And, um, six weeks after I wrote my first script ever, uh, like a sort of spec script to see if I could write, um, they called me up and said, congratulations, you're the new writer of Hellblazer. <laughs> wow. That is an amazing story. Uh, and <laughs> and you were on it for confidence. quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Confidence is exactly equal to to accomplishment. Well, yeah. I, I really believe it, you know? And mm -hmm. so if you are confident and you are, you, you take that confidence and you mix it with this sort of like real dedication to learning things um, and, a, and a work ethic, then I think that you have something, you know? Wow. And so and, uh, you were on uh, Hellblazer for a few years, right? Yeah, I actually wrote more issues of Hellblazer than anybody, uh, which is quite funny. Um um, I followed Garth Ennis, and I think there's actually a, a lesson here. You know, Garth was really popular, and his work was really great. And he had his own approach. Jamie Delano had been the first longtime writer. Jamie had his approach, and it was about politics. Garth had his approach, and it was about religion and belief. I think Garth is a pretty pretty vocal about maybe the Catholic Church and Catholicism and and beliefs and stuff like that. Um, but I was a child of England. I was a child of of the countryside you know i grew up with foxes and stoats and patches and weasels and and i and I, and you know i am the, from there you know from the west country my family are welsh by descent on my dad's side and, and english on my mum's or god knows what we are on my mum's because who knows just a bunch of lunatics um <laughs> can't do even trace them you know um but um you know, living and growing there and being there. I mean, my my brother still lives in the countryside. He still lives in a caravan with no electricity. He don't care. He he loves it there. He he loves that life. And my family are just like that. And so when I took over Hellblazer and I was learning to be a writer, I had a couple of things that were really great. Lou Stathis was an amazing editor. Um, Karen Berger believed in me, which was amazing. I got Sean Phillips as my first artist, which is like insane because mm -hmm. he's so brilliant. And I learned on the fly, but I had something to say. And what I had to say was about the magic of the English countryside. And, and, and you know, when you are from there, um, you don't you don't believe in fairies. You are one. You know, you don't believe in Jack in the Green. You are part of it, you know. And so it's just part of you. And that's what I was able to put down on the page in Hellblazer. And how did you make it over to Marvel? Uh, so I got a call from Jay Lee, and we had talked about doing a Hellblazer Hellshock crossover for a long time. And Jay had been approached by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, the guys at Event Comics. And I knew now, that. And just to just for our listeners' sake, uh, Hellshock that was one of the creator-owned ones over at Image, right? 
Yeah, it was Jay's book, and Jay wasn't really putting very much of it out. I think he'd done two issues in three years. Um, he really was like having this bit where he just he he wasn't blocked. He would draw pages all the time and then throw them away. Hmm. He he would literally throw them away. He'd throw them in trash, and um, he wasn't satisfied with his work in a sense, you know. And um, and so we kept talking about doing a Hellblazer Hellshock crossover. Couldn't think of anything. Um, and when Jimmy and Joe asked him if he would be interested in coming over and working at Marvel, they asked him who he'd like to work with. And he said, I'd really like to work with Paul. Um, and so I got a call from Jay and he just said, hey, man, um, Joe and Jimmy from event uh, are, are doing this thing over at Marvel. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, he said, great, we're going to do the Inhumans. And I said, great, who are they? <laughs> right. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that was like perfect for you, you know, because you didn't go in with any kind of preconceived notions or anything like that. Um, so yeah, there's actually something to say about that, Rick. Uh, not only did I not go in the preconceived notions, but I feel that not being immersed in all of these comics, although I knew them, you know, right. I'd seen comics and I knew about them. It meant that I wasn't stuck inside trying to add on things that had already been done. So I had no sense of the Inhumans and um, they they showed me a couple of Inhumans characters and some little short stories. And I said, OK, great. Like, like let me let me go and do it now because I, I get it. I can see something. And what I saw was probably not what other people would see because I didn't know anything about the characters. Um, and, and I think the best way of describing that was, you know, I could see this city called Atalan full of unique individuals because each each inhuman had their own unique power uh when they were exposed to the Terrigen mist I'm like oh my god that's like a metaphor for puberty you know um the king can't speak that seems like a metaphor for um royalty you know like the king can never speak his mind otherwise it creates a constitutional crisis and by the way looking at american politics you kind of understand why the king shouldn't speak his mind right right he's pretty nuts you know that people once it gets out of hand it really just just blows things up um the 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 the, the um alpha primitives which were sort of like previously a slave race but had been freed and they'd never really kind of worked out what to do with those characters and so it just looked like a metaphor for um the freedom of 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 black americans who who were set free from slavery and then not given the same freedoms as everybody else and so i could look at this and go wow this is about america and it's about the world and so i wrote it that way and just it exploded just issue two came out and everybody went this is something and it, like the internet exploded and we ended up winning an eisner and i guess they hadn't won one at marvel for quite some time so they kind of let me do more stuff well let's let's talk about the more stuff here yeah let's dive into i i think widely beloved uh mythos your series of uh, six one shots featuring marvel's biggest origins so we mm -hmm. had uh paulo uh, Rivera on the show uh, quite a while ago, but he was a real joy uh, to to talk with. I, I think we we talked for probably two hours with him, and he and he talked about how honest he was about being slow, and uh, Marvel found that the Mythos project was probably just right for him um, based on on his level of productivity. So, were there any concerns about working with someone who is at that time relatively new to the industry? And at what point did you know that your script was in good hands? 
Oh, I, w- I would say immediately. Um, no, I did, I had no concern about that. I think um, because it wasn't just hard for Paolo. Those, those Mythos books are probably the hardest comic books I've ever written, ever, by by a mile. Why is that? Well, because they asked me to do three things, right? And I'm really proud of those books. It's interesting how proud I am of the the, the projects that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I don't really do a lot of like, I'm proud of this, I'm proud of that. I mean, I suppose not not much. It's not my style. But I would definitely say so about Mythos because, because what they asked me to do is really, really difficult, right? First of all, they say, can you take the origins that, that really exist in the comics, right? And then can you mix them together with what people are actually seeing in popular culture? So how am I supposed to mix you know, the Spider-Man film with the Spider-Man origin, because that Spider-Man origin is whack. And it's like five, pa- no, nine pages long. And in, in the origin story, you know, a lot happens in the origin. You know, like he goes to, you know, little boy goes to uncle Ben, aunt May gets bitten by a radioactive spider. Two seconds later, he's like climbing a wall. Next thing you know, like everything happened, bang, 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 bang in those origin stories, but you know, didn't necessarily play that way in the film. And so you've got all of that. And then, you know, they said, I want you to give it you, Paul. I have something that, that makes it you. And, um, and you know, I was so proud that I felt like in each of those stories, I did give it something that was absolutely me. And none more, no more pride than with the Cap story. But I'll give you an example, right? In the Fantastic Four origin story, you know, we've got, they go up into space, they get hit by, bombarded by like cosmic rays, they come back and they've got these crazy powers and so on and so forth, right? I knew that the film worked a certain way. I set my version in front of a congressional inquiry because they had come down to earth and now they're kind of sitting there in front of congress and they're being asked are you a danger to society and they're like what have we done wrong we we are american citizens no you know like you you can't just because you're you're afraid of what we can do doesn't mean to say that you have any right to tell us that we don't have the same rights as anyone else so an interesting kind of story but i did a thing right one of the congress people asks them well, when the, the cosmic rays hit, what were you thinking? And I had Reed Richards say, um, I just wanted to hide. No, I'm sorry. I had Reed Richards say I was reaching for Sue. He was trying to help her. She said I was afraid and I wanted to hide. Ben Grimm is trying to rip the door off uh, with all of his strength and might to get to Johnny. And Johnny just said, I was really hot because he was outside there. And so th- what they were thinking at the time is what gave them the powers. Yeah. And no one had ever done anything like that. And I just thought it was like really kind of a cool twist that we gave it. Um, So we did, you know, all of these books and they had their thing. They had a twist. Um, The X-Men one was about Angel learning to fly with his new powers. And he realized that the only way you can really learn to fly is to learn how to fall as well. And if you're prepared to fall, you can fly properly. And that was pretty cool. It it allowed me to use my own voice to say some of these stories, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, as far as the um, Captain America, the one you said you're the most proud of, uh, we actually we we did cover it panel by panel in uh, uh, one of the earlier episodes too. Um, now, Paulo said the the script was perfect, and uh, and he said also it was what made him a Captain America fan. Mm. And were you a Captain America fan before this story, or did that come from putting in the work? 
Um, I would say it came from putting in the work. I wasn't particularly a Captain America fan because, as you know, I wasn't really um, hugely into comics, right? But, you know, I do come from a family with a military background, and I think there was a lot for me to say about the military. You know, uh, my family have, have definitely given up our share of young men in wartime, you know, and um, and it sucks. I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's a terrible thing. And so I knew that when I wrote Captain America, I'd probably write about wartime and about soldiers and about soldiering, right? But you have to understand something that people usually don't understand about British people and about their relationship with Americans, right? Like we have a interesting relationship and a tremendous reverence for America in Great Britain because you sent an entire generation of young men to, to our shores as a staging post to go to Europe and fight for the freedom of other people in foreign countries, right? There is no doubt in my mind that that was the greatest generation. And, um, you know, I will tell you, uh, you know, and we'll get into this in a minute when we talk about the other book, but, you know, having a reverence for the American military sounds like it would be an odd thing. But interestingly enough, we learn more in Europe, I believe, about American history that's accurate than you do in America. Um, and, and, <laughs> I it's, and it's frustrating. It. Yeah, it's frustrating, right? Because in America, you are taught what is called romanticized history, right? You actually learn things like the story of, you know, the first Thanksgiving, and it comes from, you know, novels that were popularized in the in the Victorian era, right? And that stuff is literally taught in your schools. And that's a tragedy. Because if you actually look at the 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 development of America and its and its military history, you know, you're talking about people that broke away from a pretty tyrannical power. People could, you know, the, the British could bill it inside somebody's house. They could, you know, and so here's a bunch of people that kind of broke away, tried to form their own country, succeeded, had Britain come back in 1812, you know, all of that stuff. So we get taught that and, and, um, and Americans don't as much, you know, because the, the, the American version of history is quite homogenized and it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of like, let's gloss over this thing that we did wrong, whereas we don't, right? And so it's interesting to look at it. And um, so because of that, and there was this one thing that was part of my life, right, which is my next door neighbor was on the USS St. Louis when Pearl Harbor was bombed, um, Doug Huggins. And he was one of the finest people I ever met. And um, my youngest boy has a middle, his middle name is Douglas. Ah. After Doug. Very and nice. So, you know, when you have that that connection and that belief and understanding of of it, then the moment I got into Cap in Mythos, um, I realized what story I was going to write, and it was going to be the story of, you know, um, him as a young man. Like first thing I thought of was this, right? And this is probably you know, and and it's worth kind of understanding my process of storytelling um the first and only thing i do and i don't write until i've done this is to say why like why are you going to tell this story and if you don't know mm -hmm. why you it's worth telling don't do it yet until you know why i i remember you saying that before when you when you took the spider-man gig mm -hmm. um that that was something that you worked out early and uh who the character was and and worked out the why what is cap's why Perhaps why comes from his childhood my, was my belief um, that he was raised in the Great Depression and he would have seen terrible deprivation 
and he would have seen um and he would have seen he would have grown up in a difficult circumstance and if you take a look at the origin um you know he his mom was a single mom just like mine because his father was dead you know his father had passed away right and so it led me to the question what would his connection have been with his father what if there there wasn't one really not but what did he want it to be you know and um and what was his connection with his mom and and how did he see the world right because if you can just do a bit of research and a bit of history history one of the scenes that we put into mythos was that um cap had seen an america in which local communist parties would um in the depression and it's a true story the local communist party would often when when a landlord would take somebody's possessions and put them out on the street the local communist party would come back and, and carry them all the way upstairs again and the landlords couldn't afford to throw them out twice so in in cap's eyes he had seen communists be the good guys and so he saw America for everything that it was instead of the jingoism and the and the the silliness and like reds under the beds communist he saw it as a place where everybody could coexist and be good and that's an amazing ideal and that's an ideal that I think a lot of young men took to to war when they did sacrifice their lives as part of the greatest generation so he had been part of that generation right I'm sorry if this is going too in depth, but you know, no, no, good question, this is what right? a, so, this yeah. is what we all love and, and love to hear. We love to hear the stories behind the story. Okay, and uh, so you know, in in my story, um, I remember, you know, I've got a next door neighbor, and he's he's a survivor of this of the of the St. Louis, you know, and and of Pearl Harbor attack, and you know, I I interviewed Doug before he passed away. And I went to his house and his lovely little wife, Ruth, brought me in and she gave me, you know, a cup of coffee and some cookies. And he had a bow tie on because he was in front of camera. Right. And so he wanted he grew up in Austin, Austin, Texas. He wanted to look good for camera. He'd brushed his hair, he had his shirt on perfectly. He was of that generation. Right. Yeah. And. I'll never forget um, talking to him and he's telling me about. Pearl Harbor and stuff like that. Um, we actually talked about his life more than Pearl Harbor, but he talked about it and he said, you know, um, would you like to see a picture that I took just before the attack? And so it's him and his best friend, Bobby Shaw. Mm -hmm. And Bobby was a trumpeter third, third class. And um, I said, yeah. And he shows me the picture of him and Bobby. And it's a photo they took just before the attack. Mm -hmm. And they're both sitting there. And um, Bobby was on the Arizona mm -hmm. and he died. Yeah. And when you, when you have it put in front of you mm -hmm. by someone that survived it, yeah, I'll tell you. Obviously, I was really moved, and it, it blew me up. I was like, Doug, you could have warned me, man. Like you're killing me, right? I'm crying, <laughs> and um, and you could see he had pride. He would go back to the St. Louis reunions. He he had people that only shared that. No one had shared that experience with him, right? Mm -hmm. So a very long-winded way of talking about the mythos story, but but it basically, you know, you have to understand that if you're going to do a why, then the why of soldiers in wartime is huge. And so the why of Captain America is this. The story I did was about Cap going back to his regimental dinner. And um, he goes back every year to see the boys, right? To see the people he served with. But what he begins to say is that you know, he he joined up and he was, you know, he was unfit for duty. I mean, he's too small. 
mm-hmm. and he gets this opportunity to serve. But the reason that he went to join was because of his father, because he wanted to be in the Blue Spaders, the 17th Infantry, yeah. and his and his father had been there, and he'd never known his father. So his only way to connect to his father was to be in his father's regiment. And he joins up to be part of it. Um, he goes away to war and he finds out that he's invincible. And so as in his world, he always felt this guilt because he had all these friends that were a corner of some foreign field somewhere, you know, that that didn't make it. And these kids that were forever 21. Um, and then he comes back. And he goes all across the universe as Captain America. He's the superhero and he's invulnerable and all these things have happened. But in the end, you know, he he kind of says the truth about war, which is bravery is not running into battle with super serum inside you. Bravery is running into battle thinking of your wife and children at home. And yeah. so he had this incredible reverence himself for these men he had served with. And he goes back to the regimental dinner. And so one thing, I mean, this, you know, this, he got, when he goes back to the dinner, he literally finds his father's picture on the wall of the 17th infantry, you know, and he, and he, and he finds his dad's picture and he goes, and there's this one kid. And if you take the origin it's actually, there's this kid that fires a catapult at him in the first book right. ever. Mm-hmm. And so the premise was that he goes to war with that kid. The kid's name is Doug Huggins. Mm-hmm. Now it's canon. And he goes to war with Doug. Um, first of all, he gets bullied by Doug. Then he ends up joining, enlisting with Doug because Doug's bored. And then at a certain point, he pins, you know, a medal to Doug in the in in the theater of war, you know. And then he comes home, and in the end, it's him and Doug at the regimental dinner with all the guys around them. And then the guys fade, and it's just him and Doug. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, powerful. It's a, it's a powerful story. Yeah, it really is. It and yeah, it it hits home. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, first of all, I, you, I don't think we've told you this, but, you know, Bob, Bob served a, a, in the Marines for 25 years. So he has a lot more uh, experience uh, on, on talking about these types of things than I do. And we'll get into that in a little bit with the next question. But um, it was a powerful story. It was a beautiful uh, and, and Paolo certainly did it justice um, yeah. with the with the amount of work that he put into it. In fact, I am very fortunate Um that uh and and i'll I'll take any opportunity to show this off um but i i i own i own three pages from this story yeah that's uh, you know so i i have the, the pre-serum uh steve and then i have uh when he goes through the transformation and then to the point where you know he uh he you know erskine is shot and so um you know it, this story is very special to me and uh and and you guys knocked it out of the park and paolo paolo just has this ability uh, to paint in a dynamic fashion that other people don't do they paint and they get these like fermetti type stories that look a little bit too realistic and don't have this dynamic quality paolo's painting was dynamic so you know you did ask me you know what was i concerned i'm like never not with him no look at what he did it was beautiful amazing so uh, when we when we did interview Apollo, he did say that of the of the six mythos one shots that you two collaborated on, Captain America took him the longest, about mm. six months to complete. And, and he mm. described, I mean, we talked for hours and I mean, it was such a fact. And I will tell you that we, we all teared up in that conversation because it was such a beautiful, heartfelt conversation about mm. that particular one shot. And he described all the details he researched and the different kinds of research that he did, the, the books, the, the museums, the documentaries, 
And I, I know you're on record of calling yourself a student of history. In mm -hmm. but what kind of what kind of research do you do, or did you do, considering that that particular mythos was set uh, during the early forties? Um, yeah. So I suppose one affliction of mine, anyway, is that if I'm going to write a detective movie, right? If I'm going to, you know, about detectives, I want to write it about detectives, so that if a detective reads it, they say you did a decent job. Right. Like, you know, what do detectives do when they get to a crime scene? How does how long does it take somebody die a lot longer than it shows in a movie? All these types of things, you know, you need to understand and do the research. Right. And from the research and that that kind of hard work is where you get so much anyway. Um, um, you know, we're probably going to get a bit heartfelt tonight because, you know, this project working with Cap moved me incredibly emotionally. It, it um it, it harkens back to my great grandfathers that perished in the war. Um, my father's service, you know, like, uh, you know, I have plenty, like, really close friends that served. And so, you know, what I would do is I wanted to understand that I really wanted to understand, like, him as a person growing up in the Great Depression and what that meant, right? And not having a father. And, and you will see a theme in my work that when I write about heroism, it's not just because somebody punched somebody, right? It's not heroism. That's just, you go in a physical fight, you know, there are some, you know, some aspects to it, but heroism is being a parent, right? Hero heroism is being a teacher um, and sacrificing and doing the things that you're supposed to do to sacrifice for your family. Um, and so those are the types of heroism that then come into focus hugely in wartime, where especially in the Second World War, you've got a bunch of young guys that are about to sacrifice their lives potentially for the sake of other people, right? And, you know, we know that wartime is like, in a sense, it's it's started by old men and finished by young men who never get back home, you know? Um, and I have a a huge like i said a huge reverence for it i have uh for, for the military in in any country and um i think you know understand that 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 uh one of the ways in which i research is i will understand how soldiers live and um what is said about soldiers and and things like that and i think it's really important to to sort of understand things like i I find World War One poetry to be um, just beautiful and tragic. Um, if people have have never read um, World War One poetry, I suggest that you do it. Read like Seabreeze Sassoon, Thomas Hardy, um, um, you know some of these poets, and Wilfred Owen especially. And I think if you can if you can see in Wilfred Owen. Um, what I see, you will probably, you know, be the better for it. And so that was the type of research I did. I think it was really important research to do. All right. So I have to ask, I'm going to lighten up the mood a little bit here, and I'm going to ask you another question about Mythos Cap. But uh, Chris Evans spoke about how he kept your comic, Mythos Cap, uh, issue by his side while, while filming First Avenger. That had to have been a big thrill for you. First I ever heard of it. Really? Yeah, oh, well, uh, yeah. So so Paulo had um he he had seen this uh he saw the quote 
um, from Chris Evans, and he he immediately <laughs> screen uh, captures it and sends it to his mom, and and uh, yeah, yeah, he actually he kept it with him the the old time. So, well, I, I I wish that I'm I'm glad in a sense because I think that Chris Evans brought a lot to it. Um, in a sense, I would say I wish that that had been the film that they made, right? I really do. I wish that had been the film that they made because they had every opportunity to do so, but they sort of got into blue lasers and odd Nazi stuff and, and things. And I'm like, you know, you could have, look, the stories that we wrote, the ones that I did in Theater of War, the one we did in Mythos is, is everything that is cap. You know, everything that is cap is, I believe in that one single issue, which is, this is how it feels to be a hero. This is why you go to war. This is the regret that you have when you survive. There's a, there's a, you know, I was talking about like First World War poems and there's a poem um, by A.E. Hausman, right? And I think again, right, but it basically says, um, it, it, it talks about like, the, the just the the thing is like a four line poem but it says life to be sure is nothing much to lose but young men think it is and we were young mm. right and in that encapsulation you're like my god it's like everything you know everything that is the is the plight of the common soldier and i realized i was going to write about the plight of the common soldier because my family we're the common soldier right we're not captain america no one's captain america but if you could make captain america the common soldier that's when it really, really means something. And hopefully that's what Chris Evans got out of it. Yeah. It's funny. Um, it's interesting take on, on your description of, of your thoughts on, because we, we had a, a several of uh, different patrons uh, right into the, to, to ask questions for you. And one of them, Joshua Van Dyne asked this very question. He, he said, my question for Paul Jenkins is a kind of a multifaceted one that I'm wondering if he has seen Captain America First Avenger, and if so, what would he have done differently for that movie, mm. given that he wrote a pretty great Captain America origin story three years prior to the film's release? I love this question because not only did you write Mythos, but you know, you you've written and directed other forms of media. So yeah. so I like this question. So what I would do is I would have found the why first in the film, right? And I think there's a why, right? I do, but I I think it gets it, you know. Let me see if I can say this the right way. Like, I can see why Marvel is having a bit more of a challenge right now. Nothing to do with whether or not they can make good films. It's clear they can make great films, right? But what happens is you lose your way over time uh, if you're not careful and you don't adhere to one abiding principle to me, right? And the abiding principle is that story and characterization is everything and everything else is secondary. And so if you don't abide by that, if you abide by the rule of a sequel, I want to make sure I can get this sequel out and do some fun stuff and all that. So let me tell you the movies that I think in, in terms of Marvels were absolutely the ones that would just blow us away, right? First Iron Man movie. I remember sitting with Joe Casada in LA and, he, and, and they had made the Ang Lee Hulk movie and it wasn't really hitting its mark, you know. And... He was telling me, yeah, we got Ed Norton in this next one and it's pretty good, but you know, whatever's going on. He said, let me tell you something. Iron Man is special. And it's because of him. It's because of the casting, right? Right. Robert Downey. And I always tell people Iron Man wasn't Iron Man in the public eye until Iron Man came out. No one knew who I am. No one cared about Iron Man. Now he's a cultural icon. 
but it wasn't before, which means you can make a cultural icon out of anything that you make if you tell a great story with great characterization, right? And so I look at that then and I'm like, uh, the first um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was about a family. It was just about a found family, you know, and it, and it had a theme and a reason for being um, that means something. The Black Panther one had such a cultural meaning to people. And so they found a thing that really did work, which was character and story. And I think the question of of now is, are they getting character and story or are they like beginning to try to work out what do we do? How do we make it popular? What's the stuff? And it's like, here's how you make it popular. You take a book like Mythos and you give that book to Chris Evans and you let it drive the way that he feels about Captain America. It's character and story. Right. And so what would I do differently? I would simply say. I would tell a story about a man and why he went to war, because that is that is imprinted into the fabric of the United States of America. Right. That so many young men have gone to war, so many young men and women have served. Right. And so it's a, a story that we are not just familiar with, but it's like it's it's part of what our society is here in the States. And if you can tell that story with a convincing feeling then then it doesn't matter what you do in the film you can, your plot can be anything and i think sometimes what they tended to do was to make the plot have certain things here's the stuff where it blows up here's the lasers here's the things and i say i i think you sometimes can lose your way if you're doing that i think it should be story and character first everything else second so speaking of iron man and, and taking it back to mythos paulo said there there were ideas for two more issues uh, outside of the, the six you guys did. Uh, Doctor Strange yes. and Iron Man. Um, how far did you you get in working on those? Well, I wasn't I wasn't. Um, they didn't want me to do Iron Man for the way I wanted to do it because of his alcoholism. And I think that they were concerned about the. Um, I would have done it in a very uplifting way. It's about the courage to overcome yourself and your challenges. Right. Um, and I think it would have really grounded him. And I don't know that that was, I don't know that that was um, something that they could afford to do because of the popularity and the way that Iron Man was built. Now, and that, that makes sense to me. I have no issue with that, right? Um, plus, especially, you know, and I didn't have another story for Iron Man other than really exploring that part of his life, right? Um and then Doctor Strange, like I had a particular theory, but the, the way that I wanted to write Doctor Strange was not the way that they were going to use him. See, I truly believe that people fail with stories about magic practitioners because they they don't do what I learned on Hellblazer. And Hellblazer is a great character for it, right? Everything that John, John Constantine knows the rule, right? That if you practice magic, that it costs you much more than you get, Right. So if you're going to do hocus pocus and do a thing, it will cost you a lot more than you get out of it, right? You might solve a problem right now. It causes you a bigger problem later. And I wanted to take that approach with, with Dr. Strange. I had the origin story of origin. I had the best, best origin story. Oh my God. I was so in love with that story. And there have been a few that I've had in comics that I just was like, man, I guess I'll probably call them up again at one point and go, we should really do these stories, right? Um, but the thing about me as well, if you take a look at my work, is I hugely do a lot of like single issue stories. I love them. And the business doesn't like them, 
right? They don't like to publish single issue stories. And so um, I think it's important for this industry that we do it. Um, I think it's very hard to walk into a comic store and see a bunch of books and try to work out how you're going to start at issue five out of 12, right? But I think you could take any of my books and walk up to them and, and at least make a value judgment based on reading one issue and being finished with it, you know? Um, so it just didn't work out. I think we we would have done them, but um, six was fine. And they tend to do it for trades as well. And so they're like, okay, six is good. <laughs> yeah. well, I would have done it forever. <laughs> well, well, I, we would have loved for you to do, uh, do it forever. Lots of characters out there. We'd love to see your take on, but mm -hmm. you, you talk about your preference for uh, single issue stories. And, and, and as you said, Marvel isn't, isn't really a big fan of those. Um, so let's talk about your theater of war one shots. It sounds like this was the perfect sort of project uh, re that really matches what you enjoy doing. Um, well, okay, so it was. I mean, the thing is that Tom Brevoort called me and he called me up on the phone. I remember exactly where I was standing when he called me. And he said, Paul, listen, you know, I know with your family's background and just the style of writing that you have, I've got this project coming around called Theater of War. And I'm thinking of doing these these 35 page one shots. Would you like to pitch for them? And I said, yeah, would I? And he said, well, okay, you know, could you get back to me with a couple of pitches? And maybe we'll find one. And I called him back 20 minutes later with all four stories. And he, and he said, I want to do all four of them. And I, and I, oh. <laughs> I, I Tom will attest to this, right? I, I pitched them and I, I remember telling him the first one, which is the first one in the book. I think it's probably the first one in the collection. Um, and it was um, America the Beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. And I pitched him the story and I told him what I had in mind. And as I told him the end of the story, he let out this little chuckle, right? He kind of chuckled. And I said, you were going to cry then, weren't you? <laughs> he said, you bastard. He said, I've done this for 35 years uh, and you got to me. You got me with that idea. Yeah. And then wow. I told him the other ones I wanted to do and why it meant something to me and what it was about my family and friends of mine and so on. And he basically allowed me to write all four of them. Which was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've we've heard stories about Tom. We had we've had him on the show and um, uh, some other uh, recent writers, uh, Jackson Lansing and uh, Colin Kelly. They 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 always refer to Tom and they, and they say if if you can get um, any kind of praise, any kind of praise uh, from from Tom, it is far far in between you know uh so the fact that you you got that out of him wow that's that's uh that's really cool i knew and i knew it too i just knew that at that point i knew what my style was of a right as a writer you know i knew the words that i could say and the things that i could do to make a story with captain america work and um but it wasn't just a matter of like i mean being liberated for a single issue story inside 35 pages is really different too it's awesome. Like it allows you to tell a bigger story um, and not necessarily just smash it into 20, you know, mm. uh, at the time, I think we were probably doing 21 or 22. Um, and so, you know, I knew that I would be able to um, like find the pieces that I wanted to find um, and tell these stories and really have them mean something. And since I got that reaction off of Tom for the first one, it's like, well, that had written itself. I already knew 
Because the way I write stories is I always frame them around a thing, a moment, something that means something. And, you know, at the end of that first issue, that story, American the Beautiful, something, you know, is is said and, you know, just how you get to it. And then, of course, I ended up putting a picture, I think, of Doug Huggins in there mm-hmm. um, and dedicating the book to him, um, you know, and that was pretty special to me, too. So I, I had... I I already knew the first one out of the gate was was important to me, you know. Do you, I, I want to dig into America the Beautiful a bit, but before I do that, do you know if what what the what was the genesis of of this series of war related cap stories? I mean, it was two thousand nine, yeah. I think, when this came out. I mean, so I yeah. like it. I mean, we had been at war for a while, but um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I think it's probably something to do with look, you know, they've got a product, they're changing. I suppose in Marvel, they were changing because they have these like film products now. And so they're trying to support those film products with core stories. That's what Mythos was, right? It was mm-hmm. a core set of stories um, that that revolved around the film product, right? And so I would imagine, because I don't know the answer to that question, Bob, but I would mm-hmm. say the answer is something like, yes, they knew that they needed more core Captain America stories um i think if you look in the timing of it um you can probably look at the fact that ed brubaker was doing really well with his version of cap the winter soldier stuff was really good it was very core kind of um so so the way i've written about cap has been about patriotism Mm -hmm. not jingoism right and so america has this like love-hate relationship with patriotism um patriotism is the love of one's country and the belief in what it stands for and what you could and the people that live in it right jingoism is yelling at the tv we're number one right even if you're not right yeah <laughs> so um i think you know i wanted to write stories about true patriotism uh and not and, it, and and they wouldn't just revolve around captain america they would revolve around the people that he encountered in his service mm-hmm. his country well that that's a great segue so in america the beautiful um you know we have cap standing over the long deceased body of, of Bobby Shaw from Pasadena, Texas. And, and he, um, and he says a prayer. So yeah. where was that prayer from and what prompted you to have cap um, do that for Bobby? Um, all right. So my belief would be that Bobby was a religious guy. And mm-hmm. so cap said a prayer for him. Okay. Because that's one of his guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, you do. I wondered if that prayer had any special meaning for you or no, no just no it was it was cap's choice to do what bobby would have wanted to mm-hmm. have done for his body right it's a very cap thing to do That's a, that is a, it very is cap, a cap thing, thing to do <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely now in so that same have... story cap uh he returns to normandy to to the site of the fallen comrade um he goes on to prove bobby does over and over to be a, a coward throughout the entire story mm-hmm. until he makes an unsuspecting sacrifice at the end. And this compels Cap to call him the bravest hero he'd ever known. And at the very end, you you write a dedication uh, in, in, to the real Bobby Shaw and, and to Douglas Huggins. Was this story about how even the least of us can find that one moment of courage when it matters? Yeah. Yeah, you got it. And um, so Bobby Shaw is who Cap would have been if he had not had Super Serum. You know, he 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 was, he had a, he had a limp 
and he told everybody it was because of something getting shot and it was because mm -hmm. he ran his foot over with a lawnmower. Um, he was terrible. He got Cap into trouble all the time. And even after he got his super serum, Cap still has to go undercover to still be on the base and go through training with Bobby. And then they get into wartime and now Cap's a different person and Bobby doesn't succeed. You know, they're in Palermo and Sicily and um, they're in battle for the first time and they call across the shore, but he's not able to do it, you know, and Cap has to do it for him. And, um, you know, what I wanted to write about, I mean, thematically, I always pick a thing, right? And what I wanted to write about was true, true bravery is being afraid and doing it. Mm. that's heroism right and so bobby was afraid and he was a terrible soldier and cap becomes cap and he goes all around the world and he's punching nazis in the face and he's you know he's punching adolf hitler and all kinds of stuff like that and um um you know bobby is trying to go and any chance encounter he's in a pub in england when the big push is going to come and he literally requests for Bobby to be on his landing craft at um, Omaha Beach, right? Now, not in the worst part of Omaha Beach, otherwise they probably wouldn't have survived, but in a tough, you know, that was a tough battle, right? Mm -hmm. And so here they come. Now, my wife's grandfather um, was a pilot of a landing craft at, on D-Day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got this connection. Um, you know, I learned a lot about it. And um, I am a person... Um, who will I just have a my own way of living right I just I do it the way I do it um, I remember I was going to see my wife's um, grandmother just before she passed away she was in hospital and as we were going to see her and everybody was going to visit her I saw a room with an old guy sitting in it just by himself and it was visiting hours and I was like I'm gonna go talk to that guy for a bit you mind and so they were like rolling their eyes and like, hey, I know so I went to go talk to him and he was the most amazing guy he he um he had been at Omaha Beach on D-Day he made it through he's in the second wave um his brother was in the first wave his brother had been killed by a sniper's bullet after they'd actually got up the beach so he was there for a day next day woke up brother got killed he had gone through in the second wave um, and so you got a chance to to think of of all of it. And that guy actually gave me um, sort of a, a line or a scene that ended up in in the Captain America books. Um, I can't remember if it's Mythos or this one, but I think it's probably Mythos. But you know, Cap talks about how he stood on he stood above the endeavor of D Day as they started loading all of these um equipment and and stuff and tanks and all the stuff they brought onto the beaches and he realized the just sheer level and the magnitude of what they had done and the pride that he had in what they had done right and so you know i told that guy's story a little bit and um in our story in america the beautiful it was the story of a guy that couldn't get it right but at the moment he gets to you know he ends up running up the beach oh and here's the thing right here's the bit that gets everybody like weeping um we had this whole thing where he bragged all the time yeah i'm really good i got a girlfriend at home right right I, I, i'm always you know and i'm really i'm gonna have a swimming hole and then just as the landing craft is about to come down he says i lied cap and cap's like what do you mean because i can't swim <laughs> <laughs> he lied about it and so they cap 
kind of drags him up to the beach and says, look, you're on your own, man. I've got stuff to do. And then he turns around once he gets up to the beach, he turns around and there's Bobby Shaw running all the way up to him. And he's like, what are you doing here? You know, like of all people. And he's like, you told me to keep running. So I kept running and he ends up right up at the front lines with cap and he doesn't know what to do and caps like, well you got you got like he doesn't have his gun he doesn't have his pack right? he's yeah, like ter- yeah. he's a terrible soldier but cap's like listen i got a way in and you gotta go back and tell everybody he's like, i'm not running back there and he's like you gotta go so he had this whole thing cap does this thing it's not like a writing device cap says he runs into battle and he sent sure the other way to go get everybody and he's like you know, I promised myself, don't look back, don't look back. And he takes one look back and he sees Bobby Shaw running as fast as he can, you know, trying to avoid the bullets. And in the end, Bobby Shaw gets shot in the backside, right? So it's like really, you know, he ends up getting shot. And and so later he, Bobby, you know, um, there's a grenade thrown at them all. And you have this moment, right, where Bobby has to make a decision. You know, he what can he do and for his friends he goes and he tries to clear the grenade out and he gets blown up Mm -hmm. you know cap says we'll come back for you and he says you know don't lie to me cap just you know go do what you got to do i guess this is the end for me i'll never have that girl you know i'll never have the girl i'll never have the 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 watering hole where i go swimming and all of that and um and cap then has to leave and run out of the bunker and he says don't look back don't look back and he never looks back Mm-hmm. And he leaves him there. The bunker explodes and he leaves him there for like 70 years. And he comes back for his body 70 years later. And he pins like the Medal of Valor to him or whatever, you know, but, but for his sacrifice. But he takes his dog tags and he takes them back to America. And this is the bit that got Tom. Right? He takes them back and he's talked about the water and, he, and he, he throws the dog tags into the air as he gives a speech about sacrifice. And he throws the dog tags into the air and they land in the water, just like the water with the sun glinting on it in, in, in the morning of the invasion. And he says, well, I brought you back, Bobby, to your watering hole. And she's beautiful. Right. She's the most beautiful man in all the world that you pull out. And it's the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Great ending. It was yeah. a beautiful ending. Um, yeah. And so let's let's get to the the next one that you did, which was Brother in Arms. Uh, and, and Cap is back in World War II, leading a mission in Germany behind enemy lines. And they, they capture a dam. And along the way, they take a German soldier prisoner. Mm-hmm. And, and during this, uh, Corporal Melodic and Cap get into an argument about bothering to capture the, the surrendering soldier, mm-hmm. with the corporal accusing Cap of compromising the mission. And I love this. Cap responds, better than compromising my principles. What a, a tense scene, uh, a strong, powerful statement from Cap. And it, it seems the message behind this story was one of respecting each other as humans, despite being forced to fight and kill each other. And it seems like this is the opposite of those early Captain America comics from the 40s, where the creators did their best to dehumanize the enemy, mm-hmm. uh, to make it easier for Americans to want to enter the war. Was was humanizing the enemy? Was that was that a goal for this story? Um, well, the concept of brother in arms um, is that all soldiers have a shared experience, you know, in wartime. You know, the the, the First World War was one of the most stupid and pointless conflicts in the history of of conflict. 
it didn't need to be fought. It didn't need to be started. It was started over stupid reasons. And there was the first time that trench warfare was fought with with the um, with the technology far outstripping people's ability to use it. Right. So now you've got people getting killed with mustard gas and and all of that. So the, the horror of modern war, in a sense, is is pretty complete, you know. And so in it, what we understand is that that cap understands things that perhaps his guys don't for example there they are in germany before the fall of berlin right so they're going through germany and they got to hold a place in germany well that guy is not a nazi right and so when when he when he defends his position in the bunker and then they capture him and now they've captured a prisoner the ca- the character molodek wants to to kill him because he says like we you know and cap's like nope that's not what we do. If we do that, right, then we're breaking the rules that we signed. So they can break the rules if they want to, but we're not going to. That's what makes us America, and that's what makes them Nazi Germany, right? And he's right. He's correct about it. He tries to do a prisoner swap. He tries to hand that that person back, and the Nazi commander in the nearby thing won't take the guy back. So now they are forced to follow the rules of war. Now, one of my great friends is a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Chris Dare. Great name. And Chris Dare um, helped write the rules of engagement for the United States military. Wow. So I got a chance to talk to Chris about it and, and understand how it works. Now, we did take one creative license, one creative license, and, and I acknowledge that, right? Under the circumstance we had in the book, it's possible that they it, it is unlikely that he would have freed him to do what he did but that's a call that cap makes right and in the story they capture a german the nazis won't take him back um because he's regular soldier and 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 as molodek wants to like you know punch him and kill him cap says do you see a nazi insignia on his on his shirt he's, he's here he's regular army right he's defending his homeland so you need to have some respect for him and, and tries to tell his men, you've got to have respect for your guy, for, for this guy. He's just defending his homeland. And at that point, you know, they, you know, they clearly don't like the guy being in this bunker that they're trying to defend on this bridge. And after he gets rejected by the Nazis, this German doctor um, is, is let go and he ends up attending to the men all night. And, you know, it's interesting because um, Cap at one point recognizes that he's ripped the Nazi insignia off of his uniform. And he's like, yeah, I don't like that ugly little Austrian house painter. Like he can't stand Hitler like so many Germans could not. Right. He was Austrian, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and they didn't care for him and they didn't want anything to do with him. And, you know, they but they fought for their country, which is a different thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you're defending your country, you're doing the best you can. And Cap gets it. And if you go back to the mythos one that we wrote, he talked about how communists had helped people. And so he talks about a scene in which he go in, you know, somewhere in Moscow or, or Leningrad or something in the war in the snow with a bunch of communists helping them. Because who was on the Eastern Front? A bunch of communists that became our supposed enemies. They're not our enemies. They were our allies. And we, you know, it the, it's the politicians that are our enemies. Mm-hmm. There's your punk coming out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh in, to, in in the next uh one shot uh, to soldier on we're faced with the horror of of another war this time mm. in iraq and you make it painstakingly clear that this is a different type of war than mm. the one 
um, that we've just seen in the previous two issues. And we're also introduced to the real life Sar Sergeant Brian Anderson. And at the end of the story, you dedicate it to him and, and refer to him as a friend. Can you share a little bit of that backstory? Yeah, Brian is like my little brother. He's, I'm very close to him and he's one of the finest people I know. Um, he's the first triple amputee to survive his injuries from Iraq. Um, and so he was blown up in a roadside bomb. Um, Brian is a spokes spokesman for a wheelchair company. Um, and so when I met him, I was actually uh, delivering a speech at a place called the Cusp Conference in Chicago. Um, and I had been invited because I was one of the very few people they could find that worked across all media, like comics, animation, video games, film. I, I, you know, they needed someone to do like cross media, but most people talk about it. They just don't do it. Whereas I do it. Right. And Brian had been brought in. Now this is on nine 11. So it's five years anniversary after nine <laughs> 11. Fantastic. <laughs> and I'm in Chicago and the first person to speak, and we've been friends ever since, right? The first person to speak at that was a guy called Lyle Awerko. And Lyle is the guy that took the most iconic picture of 9-11 of, um, of the plane hitting the tower. And how he got it was he, came, he went around to get the light, um, and he wanted the light to be right. And as he was setting up, the plane started to come in, and he got that shot of it blowing the tower out from the direction it came that was on the front of time magazine as one of the most iconic photos ever taken right so it's 9 11 lyle gives that speech then brian walks on and he's you know he's triple amputee and he walks on with this pair of german engineered legs that so now he's walking and people are crying and i'm like you bastard <laughs> i have to follow that i gotta follow that <laughs> so you know i just made everybody laugh and sort of like well i guess i gotta follow that i'll do it my way um, but Brian and I got friendly and then I realized, and, and Brian said something to me, first of all, one of the first things he did was show me on his phone, his insurgent video, which is just dark as anything, right? He actually showed me himself getting blown up. Um, they, wow. they sent the video in. And so he's like, look, that's me coming around. Boom. Up goes this like Humvee. And I'm like, man, that is that's pretty dark, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. But he, he said something to me that was going to make him one of my best friends, like it or not. He told me that he served with a couple of other guys, one guy called Kenny, you know, and um, he said, you know, I feel sorry for Kenny. And I said, how, man? Like, you're a triple amputee. Like, how? And he's like, well, he's like, I've got a great job as a wheelchair spokesman. I don't have the sort of PTSD that other people had. I don't have that emotional damage and, and invisible kind of injury i got obvious injuries but i walk in a place and people love me i've thrown out the first picture a white Sox game he's a massive white Sox fan so he he felt that he had been given this incredible opportunity to talk to people to show them who he was to to get a full-time job with a pension and all of that whereas kenny he felt sorry for because kenny had to go back on, an, on another tour mm -hmm. in iraq right and at that point listening to a guy who's a triple amputee explaining to me why his friend who was completely able-bodied was uh, was unlucky told me everything I need to know about Brian. Yeah. It's a um, fantastic perspective. Yeah. yeah. And so we wrote uh, the only story as far as I know. I may be wrong, actually, but at the time, maybe it was the only story that, we're, that, that was in Iraq with Kat. I don't think they were doing contemporary stories, but they let me do the story. And um, it was all about... Um, it, it was about um, like, how do we see our injured? 
And I did one thing in that that I was really proud of too. Um, although autocorrect messed it up. It's the craziest thing. So even at that time, autocorrect was doing things and I don't know how, but when they translated it to the lettering, um, so the premise was that because of his super serum, um, uh, Cap had an eidetic memory. He could remember everything, right? Now, where did where did that come from? Me. Was that okay? You're the, okay because that is something that's canon now. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. It came from me. We gave him an eidetic memory. It had given him a memory that meant that he could not forget anybody he'd ever served with. Yeah, and so that was his privilege that he had the privilege to remember the name of every single person that he'd served with and every single person that had died with him in battle. So I cut you off. I'm sorry. The autocorrect. What, what, autocorrect what? was that they corrected it, autocorrected it in the lettering to didactic memory. That's not, it's not quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but yeah, he had an eidetic memory and, and um, that was a, a function of the super serum. And what that did was allow him the privilege to remember everybody. I'd, I'd love that. I, I think that is an amazing addition mm -hmm. to to add to his uh, lore, uh, you know, because that you, you say it's a privilege and it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. But and that's how Cap sees it. Um, yes. But for many of us, um, that would be uh, just a. Uh, I want to say a curse, but it'd be very tough, you know, emotionally to, 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 to handle that. And uh, the way you wrote it um, for Steve to look at it as a blessing instead of a curse. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah. And, and another thing that we did was, was, you know, Brian's character, real person, Brian told me that, you know, he was really concerned that they, they were a bit frustrated because they were driving around Iraq. They were riding in Baghdad and they believed that their captain was making them drive too slowly as either a show of force or some kind of thing. And they were like, this is a bad idea. And then they got blown up. So it turned out it was a really bad idea, wasn't it? Right. And in the story, Brian's character has lost one of his hands, which, you know, Brian did. Right. And so at a certain point, Captain America visits him in the hospital after he's recovering from his injuries. And Brian holds his hand up that doesn't have a hand. And he says in the story, like, you can't even tell which finger I was holding up to him because he's just <laughs> so, so annoying, right? right? And then a little while later, um, at the end, Captain America comes back to him and says, listen, I've always wondered if I didn't have you driving around too slowly and around in that day. And, um, you know, if if... So, you know, it's a mistake. So he comes back and even says to his own guy, I've, I've worried about that ever since. He's never forgotten it, right? And then Brian's like, it's okay. So, you know, I've got a good job and all that kind of stuff. Maybe these things work out. It's about Brian healing. It's about people healing from war and the injuries that come. And then Brian salutes him. And of course, he doesn't have a hand, you know? So it's it's but, kind of a, all of it there, you know? What did, what did Brian think of this story? He loved it. We did, you know, he loved it. He yeah. he. He loved it. It was my privilege to 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 write it, you know, and um, he was really excited and pleased and we signed a few of them and it was great, you know. Oh, that's neat. Really good. Uh, so the last one was Ghosts of My Country, and mm -hmm. uh, which is a very different story than the other three. Um, and, and this one starts with the Revolutionary War uh, and then makes its way to present day and then stopping along major battles and wars along the way. Uh, speaking of 9-11, um, for someone who's never read that story, how would you describe it? It's a love letter to the United States military. How's that? And and I I kind of felt that. And I 
was it challenging writing from an American perspective during the Revolutionary War? No, because we get taught world history. You know, <laughs> it comes full circle, Paul. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I feel like Eddie Izzard. You know, like I just it always comes back to the end. No, we get taught world history, so it's not a challenge to understand the sacrifice of American soldiers and the magnificence, in a sense, of a country that um, is declared you know, by a bunch of people that are rebels, essentially, you know, and they're trying to do a certain thing and they're fighting against tyranny. Um, you know, that story goes through, that story to me is one of my favorite things that I've ever written. And I will tell you that I don't care about reviews. I never do. I don't care if they're bad. I don't care if they're good. It gets kind of tiring if someone wants to give you a bad review because they're angry today and they want to just say stuff. And it gets a little tiring sometimes when people are like, oh, my God, you're the best. This is the best thing. And it's, you know, it's a book, right? Um, but I had my favorite review ever in that book. Um, um, I think the artist was Claudio Castellini. And um, the review was it took a British author... And, a, and an Italian artist to treat, teach me the true meaning of American patriotism. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, that must have hit home. Room. Wow. It really did. And um, well, that story is you come in and you are just at the point. This is why this is why I kind of rail against American teaching of its own history. You know, July 4th has absolutely no significance whatsoever, except that that's the day that it's observed. It was July 2nd was when they read it. It was ratified on the 17th, you know, like July 4th. Okay. That's good. We'll do that one. You know, um, but it's good actually, because the reason I like America is you guys have a party for anything like, like Halloween, all of a sudden <laughs> everybody's on, on vacation. It's great. You know? Okay. Yeah. So it was about, at that point that john adams is sitting there listening to the reading of the declaration of independence for the first time on the second or third of july 1776 he he's overcome by emotion and he's like look you know i don't care much for jefferson frankly i don't like him very much but these are the greatest words i've ever heard in my life right and we're doing something here today that means something and as you pull out captain america's ghost is standing right there Right. And you go to the War of 1812, which is when the British came back and tried to see how much they could keep, you know, uh, come back. And and so on that time, uh, they bombed Baltimore Harbor. They bombed the the, the barracks with Congrave rockets uh, from the harbor. And they had taken a prisoner uh, as a local guy. And a couple of guys had gone to seek his his freedom because the British had kind of unlawfully arrested him but th maybe that wasn't unlawful but certainly the bombing of baltimore harbor was because you're now attacking uh, a country and um in that battle apparently one congrave rocket came right into the magazine and it didn't explode which is crazy so the guy on the ship you know is is writing a poem and the poem he's writing is the same po poem that John Adams was writing. And you see it written by different people all the way across American military history. And it's called a ghost of my country. And that guy on that boat is Francis Scott key. True, true story. It happened. And so in the morning when the bombardment had finished, he looked up and he saw that flag that was just, you know, and he wrote a second poem called the star spangled banner. And so that's the premise that we put into the story um, and then that poem is written all across time. Um, 
uh, a young guy dying in the Ardennes, um, and just trying to write home to his to his wife and his child. And Captain America is there as he dies. Um, a young guy with really bad PTSD in Vietnam, who Captain America tries to protect with his shield as a ghost. Um, and it went all the way through to the moon landings, the greatest moments in American history. And even the you know, moon landings were military because of, you know, Armstrong and all those guys. Um, and it just goes through 9-11 and it goes through all of these moments where Captain America is present and visible. And um, in the end, we take, I believe, I think we did it this way, um, essentially the, the the final page is a picture of Captain America and, and his backdrop is the, star, is the Stars and Stripes. And it's kind of fused into all of the old covers of the Captain America stories. So the, the idea is that Captain America is the epitome, is the personification of the American military and he's been there from the beginning. And he's an idea right he's a he's a story but he's also real because of what he represents right the the american dream yeah uh american I, belief in itself yeah i i'm still dumbfounded that somehow you pitched all four of these stories to tom brevoort in 20 minutes yeah <laughs> well he asked me he asked me do you want to write any i think you probably would have some military stories and i'm like yep yeah so shortly after theater of war you you left comics for a little bit and yep. uh, I believe you said you became disillusioned. Uh, yeah. What brought you back? Um, I love the medium. Love the medium, hate the business. I am. I was. I cut my teeth at Mirage Studios. I was lucky enough to work with um, a company, Thunder Publishing, that was founded on the Creators' Bill of Rights. I don't. I strongly disagree that intellectual property is the core central hub of of the content that makes all this money and entertains people the creators are the core right they don't exist unless steve ditko draws spider-man they don't exist unless jack kirby draws all the characters that he drew mm -hmm. and so i was i was raised that way i believe it wholeheartedly and um you know i was seeing what i felt was like sort of the marginalization of of creators and um, I was pretty vocal about it. I didn't like it. But, but I back. came back yeah. because I love the medium. So, I mean, we've got a few questions from our patrons, Paul, uh, if, if mm -hmm. you wouldn't mind answering those as well. Mm -hmm. So Matthew Glover asks, uh, you wrote your theater of war stories in the mid 2000s when the U.S. was in the middle of two ongoing wars and Cap was in, in the main 616 was killed at the end of Civil War. Um, so how did the events of the times influence you and your stories? And if you wrote more theater of war stories today, what would you want to cover or say? I could, I could write a hundred theater of war stories right now. I could, it wouldn't make any difference to me. Every single one would have a similar idea and theme, which is it's about the people who go to war and what it means. Now I'm currently working um, with a bunch of guys on film stuff and they are, uh so what's the best way of putting it like they're as special forces as it gets they're all operators right uh these guys have been there and done it and when you see like the sort of apocryphal stories of everybody knows someone who was in seal team six right these guys are it they're great and they know what they're doing and they all work in in the stunt community here in film in, in atlanta um and 
you know, I'm writing a screenplay right now about um, PTSD and the effects of PTSD on on soldiers and what it means. Um, you know, you want to move somebody's emotion, you want to move my emotions, um, get me talking about the first war, you know, my great grandfathers who perished. You know, I was lucky. I wrote uh, the Darkness video game. It's actually something I've talked about before in the Darkness video game you go in and out of the first world war trenches and at a certain point i put my great grandfathers in the trenches as npcs and so if you climb over the trenches and you get to a certain point uh they come up to you and he goes hello my name is is uh, captain william eldridge of the british expeditionary force that's one of my three great grandfathers wow and that's, so that's sweet when i played it um i stopped right there and i hung out with them for hours <laughs> that's awesome you know, i just i just hung with them and wow, we all have, could do that. I have um, the widow's pennies in my house. Mm. Um, when when my family are, are pretty funny, they're very fractured. My family, they're bonkers, you know, they're all nuts. And uh, when my grandparents passed away, um, you know, they sort of had a bit of a kerfuffle about, you know, inheriting the money and all that. And I said, look, just here's what I want, right? Let me take the widow's pennies. That's the only thing I care about. Um, that's all I care about. Uh, let me have the artifacts from them. So I'm lucky enough to have uh, the widow's penny that was sent back to my great grandmother, Florence, um, for William Eldridge when he died. He was shot in a, um, in Arras in France in that battle, and he died in a clearinghouse. Um, he just bled out and he never met my grandfather. So he must have laid there and watched the sky get darker as he died. And it'd be something you could, you could, be fine with right now he would be fine but in that terrible battle without the facility he bled out and never met my grandfather and so my grandfather as three of my grand great my grandparents did grew up without a father right um another of them you know uh my my okay for, so for example my great-grandfather freddie groves um he died in palestine tragically two days after the war ended and he was buried in ramallah in palestine and so when i see ramallah on the news and when i see what's happening in palestine i'm like listen you know we need to remember what war does and what it means and who people are and that the people of ramallah palestine have kept in the commonwealth war graves commission have kept my great-grandfather's grave respectfully clean and tidy and they always respected his service all of that time and we should remember that kind of thing when we're doing stupid shit like we do right now yeah wow yeah. No, I mean, that just the, the, the personal connection, I mean, really comes through uh, in the in the power of the narrative. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, it really it deeply moves me, you know, as a as a as a soldier myself. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Because I because I I look at it and I'm like, I know that I've had plenty of people who served who come to me about I mean, you know, I've got a couple of great friends. I know one of them. She she's. She's a puddle of jelly every time we talk about his books. And she's sort of like, this is book. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, there's a lot in it. And um, so I could I could write a hundred of them and not even think about it. I got so much to say about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to ask you about the All, uh, All Winter Squad Band of Heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, and Aaron Paul actually had a question about this one uh, because he's a big fan of it as well. 
Um, so he, he, he asks, I recently reread the all winners squad band of heroes, and it felt like I was watching a comic adaptation of fury. I think he's referring to the, the 2014 Brad Pitt film. So, I mean, it's a great bunch of stories. Uh, well, it's one story. Uh, I think it was five or six issues that, that, that got published and you mentioned all kinds of great things. You mentioned timely comics. There's a call out to Martin Goodman. There's some great golden age characters like the young Avenger and slow motion Jones and the victory boys. And then you introduce some new characters too, like captain flame and, and the transistor mech. So can you tell us a, a bit about your inspirations for what was happening in that story? And has there any, been any talk about revisiting any of those characters i i might talk to marvel about that i i wish we would end it um please so that story to me was was as special as any story i've ever written mm -hmm. and i think it's a tragedy that it got canned um it wasn't brought all the way to the end and it yeah. should have been five was the last issue it said to be continued uh, yeah. i saw solicitations for six and seven they had covers and everything yep uh, how far was it supposed to have gone eight and the end was written and 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 that story okay so you know we'll get into sort of like a more challenging part of our conversation here right that story <laughs> yeah um you know i it, it it definitely did affect my relationship with marvel my relationship's fine now you know um but it affected my relationship with them because of because of a couple of reasons and one of them was that um you have to look at where comics go, right? And there's a lot of conversation right now about like pandering, for example, right? Like, you know, there's there's arguing in comics. I wish people would just try to find a way to understand and get along and have an opinion that isn't right because your opinion is not correct. And if you say you know how it is, that's never how it is, right? But with that all being said, um, you know, there's arguments about comics being too woke. There's arguments about comics that never actually covered topics. And at a certain point, it felt like maybe, you know, Marvel kind of went, okay, we get it now. And now suddenly everything was 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 this. But what what All Winner Squad was about was about um, people going to war and fighting for other people's freedoms and not necessarily having the freedom themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it was about Alan Turing, who is one of the most genius men alive, who sacrificed so much and was a brilliant mathematician who helped decode the enigma code um and basically saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives and then was prosecuted after the second world war for being a homosexual mm -hmm. right and so that's what the story was about and um, we had slow motion jones who was a black character and here were a bunch of young men that were sent away to fight for for people's freedom but were not given the same freedom at home and had to go fight for it all over again um, to, to, you know, once they got home. And so I wanted to write about that. And I sometimes think that maybe um, when you're working with a company like Marvel, there are, the, the tides shift. Had I written that in 2000, I, they would have said yes. But at that point, the stakes were higher because the films were being made and there was going to be a sale to Disney and things like that, right? And, and I think that there was a concern, right? Mm -hmm. But... What happened in the story was that at one point, one of the characters, Captain Flame, who is a homosexual, is in love with another character called American Ace, right? And they have met each other and they are away at war. And um, there was a moment where Slow Motion Jones, the lowest on the totem pole, the African-American character, 
comes around a corner and finds the, the two of them kissing and he realizes in that story at that point maybe i won't be the maybe i can use this to my advantage you know because he's not he's not a bad character he just i i oh you know like maybe i'm not going to get crap from everybody because i've found this out about them right and in it um i wanted them to kiss and it was a not a story point it was a story it was important to the story and mm-hmm. they drew the shadows of the two guys kissing and i was like no like if this was wonder woman and batman you put them on the front cover <laughs> so why not right like i get it to some extent but come on let's go tell this story right the story's mm-hmm. written a certain way let's tell it the way that it's written and it was beginning to fracture and the end of it was was very i feel sad really because the end of that story was bloody genius right? it's a really really genius story and um and it never got published um, you're killing me the kill me because I loved that. I loved that series, and uh, and I remember when I first got it and I read it and I got to the end and I'm like, I can't wait to see the end of this. And I'll send you the scripts if you want. It just I'm never came. Sure. Don't I'll don't tease you. him like that, Paul. I know. Well, yeah. I can I can tell you the end of the story if you'd like me to. I would love to. I'd love to know it because right. I mean I think it's well, a beautifully written story. Listen, as much as I'd love to have that scoop, <laughs> if you really seriously are going to go to Marvel yeah. to ask them to try to finish the story, yeah. I don't. I don't want to steal your thunder. That's true. Yeah. That's well, true. I would say this: that um, you know, I'll, I'll happily send you the scripts so you can read them, so you know what happens in the end. But when you see the end of it and you realize what this was all about, uh, remember, they have a project. It's called Project Low Key, right? And it's pretty obvious who shows up in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And and it's all about what happens in wartime. Do a deal with the devil to get something to happen, and all this kind of stuff that goes on. And you have to just put it in context. What was happening near the end of the Second World War? Why were they training that way? What did they need? And so what we had set up, which I loved this premise, and I, that's why I thought this was one of my favorite books I'd ever written. I loved the premise that the ty- all of those old comics were, um, were, were propaganda leaflets for the mm. United States military. They weren't really comics. That that These powers were emerging. And so the characters like the Invisible Man and the Victory Boys and all that were real people. And the reason that they didn't stay in print for very long is because they lost their lives in service of their country, mm-hmm. right? And so that's why they'd have these one and dones where it'd just be like, let's let's do this story and then, and then it would all fall apart, right? Because mm-hmm. basically they died, right? Yeah. And um, so to me... You know, I thought this was a great premise. I thought we had everything that we needed. And um, um, it's a shame that with five of them down, we couldn't just finish out uh, the rest of it. And, um, you know, and and by the way, that was Claudio Castellini. Sorry, Elio Bonetti was the artist for Ghost of My Country. Um, Claudio Castellini was the artist for, for All Winners Squad. And, and it was just beautifully done. Mm-hmm. The, the art, the breakdowns, the storytelling, um, what that story did and what it meant and what Cap would have understood, and the way that I wrote Cap, Cap would have understood about homosexuality, he would have understood about all of the things that were needed in order to make a country be the country that it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. And it, it, my version of Cap doesn't like America 2024. <laughs> He's not That's happy fair. with all of this arguing because <laughs> his belief is we are all citizens and our job is to be together and disagree together and agree together. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mine would be Cap for president, you know? Yeah. Well, that actually, that actually, you know, dovetails very nicely with with uh, with the last uh, patron question that we have, and this one comes from from Chester Cox, and he asks, "How do you feel Cap uh, 
that really Steve Rogers defines the American way. And how do you as a writer or as a human being define it? Yeah, um, it probably takes me back to who would Cap be? Like, who is he, right? Where is he? Because he's not Captain America anymore than Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Peter Parker is Peter Parker and Cap is Steve Rogers, right? And so, yes, they have a persona. Yes, they have a duty. Yes, they have things that they do. Yes, they are heroic, certainly the way that I write them, because they sacrifice and they believe and they trust and they have good attributes, right? Um, so to me, you know, Steve Rogers is the core of it and Captain America is the dressing um, in the century. You know, Robert Reynolds is the core of it and the century and the void of the dressing, right? Um I believe that he is a child of of deprivation, that he lived through the the Great Depression, that he understood America to be a great thing because he saw all of the things that made America from Little Italy to baseball to, you know, all of the things. Right. And, and that included, as I wrote in Mythos, you know, he witnessed c communists helping local people. Um, and his belief is that America is has its doors open to everybody it is the land of the free people who are supposed to be free and home of the brave because he sent people to foreign countries to fight for other people's freedom right so steve rogers grows up with a single mother who instills those values of him in the memory of his father and those are the things that he wants to be true about america and what he's going to go fight for is to make those things true always so most of his battle is not necessarily physical. It's getting people to understand that this is what we are fighting for. And that's what the way that I see him. And if you go to uh, the theater of war stories, the one where they are on, they, they captured a German soldier and they're protecting his life as they're being attacked. Um, what Steve Rogers understands, not Captain America, but Steve Rogers understands is that I, a human being, a man who loves his country and is trying to defend it is worthy of everybody's um, understanding. And so we are brothers in arms because even though we may have an enemy, our job is to protect that enemy, to make sure that they're not mistreated in peacetime, uh, to make sure that they're not, their likenesses are not used um, for propaganda, to make sure that they're fed properly, to make sure. And, and here's the crazy thing. There's a story about a bunch of Germans that were brought to the United States. There's plenty of places where German POWs were brought here. And as time went on during the war, they just kind of like started assimilating into like the local like town in Pennsylvania and they brought their culture with them and they started. And all of a sudden you see this vibrancy in this town that wasn't there before, because when we all mix together, when we accept each other and we mix together and we do that, that is the American dream. That's the American way. And, and if we allow it to be lost, then we're 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 losing something so big. Right. Which is why, uh, you know, you've got someone like me that is is like not into politics in any way, shape or form, because I don't like politicians. Right. And and I wrote Cap that way. It, mm -hmm. It's a reflection of the way that I see the world. Uh, you know what? You're you're pre you're preaching to the choir here. You got two big smiles on Bob and my face here. Uh, and I think I, I speak for Bob and our listeners when I say uh, you can write cap anytime you want. Amen. <laughs> uh, so let's let's move on to your your current projects. Um, but before we do that, um, I know in, in recent years, you you've been the recipient of, of several lawsuits and motion uh, that have prompt, prompted the comic book community to, to come to your aid. Um, 
And so there's a GoFund page out there, GoFundMe page out there. Um, what are you able to share uh, about the lawsuit? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, so, so here's my thing, right? You know, um, probably now that you've had a chance to talk to me for almost two hours, um, you probably get a sense of the kind of person I am and what I want out of this world and where I, where I approach things. Right. And, um, one of the things that has been always in my life is that I have a horrible affliction, right? I'm, I'm not going to let anyone bully anybody else. I just, I can't handle it. I just always walk to it. Now, the way I deal with it is not the stupid way, right? You don't go to the bully and then try to fuck punch and all that. So you know, what you do is you go talk to the bully and find out, let's slow it down, right? Like, let's, you know, come on, let's have a beer together. I'll, let's sort it out, right? And um, and that can be really effective. But in the situation that I found myself in, um, you know, my production company helped somebody come into the the town you know, in, in Atlanta, there's a lot of filmmaking here um, and ran into somebody who, uh, unfortunately, I think is probably one of the only people I've ever met that I consider to be uh, evil. You know, somebody who who basically had a Star Trek fan film and his choice was to use it to raise a million and a half dollars to make it and then never deliver anything. Um, and recently, you know, information has come to light that, that you know, certainly there's a lot of questions about the use of that money. Um but, you know, in my case, um, this person, we helped him with this, this, the poster child of no active kindness goes unpunished. My company is called Meta Studios, M-E-T-A, and we've been around since 2014. So we beat the Meta company by <laughs> six years. And, um, and it stands for Media, Education, Technology and Advancement. And it's about the advancement of creators. And so I chaired an advisory committee for the former governor of Georgia, uh, Nathan Deal. And I was introduced to this guy and we helped him make his fan film. And when we started working with him, we began to see the behavior. And uh, everything that I am not, it seems, is, is sort of wrapped up in this person in some ways, uh, in my opinion. And um um, I could see him fighting with people online and yelling and screaming and arguing and, and obfuscating. And it turns out that he had been in multiple lawsuits. He'd been sued by CBS for taking their IP and then basically monetizing it. And they, you know, had a settlement agreement and violated it immediately. He currently owes him $320,000 for doing that. But he famously says, I'm not going to pay him anything. Um, so at a certain point, we said, we can't do this anymore, man. We, we got to move on. Well, we just can't do this. It's not me, right? Um, we tried with you. You won't listen. You want to fight people. You want to be horrible to people. We need to go. It took him a minute, and then he basically went, well, I'm suing you. And it turns out he'd been in multiple laws. He was in five at the time. He bragged about being in five, and he spent three years just screaming at me across the internet and with me saying nothing, right? Because I have a job in this business, and I've been in this business for 35 years now, and I don't really need to scream at somebody who has this sort of like toxic fandom as part of what they do. And this is what we see, I think. I think we are seeing the rise of toxicity in fandom that just is pointless. It's bad actors appropriating a section of fandom, whether it be Star Trek or Deep Space Nine or Doctor Who, coming in and saying, I'm the keeper of the flame. I'm the only person. Listen, that kind of behavior is cultish at, at best, right? When you say you're the only person that knows, you're not going to tell anybody where the money went. All of these are like cult-like behaviors. And so this is what this gentleman was doing. And 
you know, he sued me and then promptly after a couple of months said, okay, you owe me $310,000. I want to do that to settle. And I was like, look, you know, after I spoke to a bunch of people, I decided to document it and make a documentary about it. And so people started reaching out to me and that's when I found out what I was really dealing with. And it was much, much, much worse than I thought. This wasn't someone who just in the framework of being a toxic fan, it was much worse than that. So um, I've been in a lawsuit with this person for three years plus now. Um, it's cost me hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. But once I spoke to the people that he'd hurt, um, I realized, you know, he sent people into bankruptcy. He's had uh, people um, who, who've almost lost their livelihood, almost lost their companies because of this guy, because he's a lifetime vexatious litigant. Um, even in our case, he has spent um, almost nothing because he has a secret weapon. And this is what really sucks in this in this story. Um, if you have a cheat code and you're really not a good person, um, his is that he passed the bar in North Carolina, so it doesn't cost him anything to do what he does. So it's an unfair fight. No one can go up against him if he writes his own briefs and basically acts and then gets some lawyer to file it for him, which is generally what he does. Um Whereas when you fight it, it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars because that's a, the dysfunction in some ways, the American legal and judicial system. Um, but I am the only person that people felt could actually take him down um, and stop him from doing this to people. Um, and so that's the endeavor, unfortunately, that got thrust upon me. <laughs> and I've been in this lawsuit. It's been horrible. Um, it's it's cost my family everything that we have in some ways. Um but what we decided to do recently, after three years of saying nothing, I finally spoke up because I have to get this guy in a, law, in, in a courtroom. He's never been there before. Um, and so if you think about being unarmed against somebody, it's $700,000 so far to get him into a courtroom. It's cost him nothing. And by the way, why do I know it's cost him nothing? Because in the recent finding in arbitration with CBS, they literally said this guy, he sued them for the costs of incurred in my lawsuit, because for some reason he decided he was going to sue them for the money, usually north of 300,000, usually south of 400. That seems to be his model. And when he sued them, the arbitrator found that there was no evidence that he spent a penny in my lawsuit. And this is a quote from them because he hadn't. So imagine that you're going up in a lawsuit against someone that it's free for them. Right. Yeah. That is not a fair fight. And so, you know, what I finally had to do is go to the public and say, look, it's time for us to put a stop to this. No way can creators be attacked anymore, right? This Because if, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And I've got some friends already that have been like, I, I have one good friend who has been in two lawsuits in the last three years that have cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars just because he's a creative person. People are trying to come at creators now and say, I can't do what you do, so I'm going to attack you. I'm going to appropriate these, these pieces of intellectual property. I'm going to I'm going to like demean you. I'm going to basically defame you. I'm going to do ad hominem attacks. And we see it in our society, and we see it even in comics, right? So it's mm. time to put a stop to it, and that's mm. hopefully what I'll be able to do. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing, uh, sharing your story with us on that. Uh, I, I know... Just from what I've read and and from people who've spoken uh, about you, it, it has been a long journey for you and and very challenging one. So, um, you know, if uh, you know, well, one, wanna... th one one last thing I'd like to say about that, don't take my word for it. I keep saying this to people: do not take my word for who this person is. Do not no take his words. Right? We put up a couple of videos of this person and his behavior, 
So go listen to him in his words and then make your decision about whether or not you think that person deserves to be doing this to other people. Yep. And we'll, uh, we'll put the link to, to that in our show notes. Uh, so people can check that out as, as well as the, the GoFundMe page. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paul, what are you doing nowadays? What is keeping you busy in 2024? Uh, do you have any projects coming up that you can share with the listeners? Uh, the problem is I don't have any that I can share with the listeners and this is why, right? I, um, I can share some, but in terms of mainstream work and all that, um, I know that the big companies, you know, these bigger companies tend to want to be the people that explain themselves about what's happening. Uh, they'd rather that we didn't preempt them, um, because they have their own marketing departments. And so usually they're like, let us be ready to go and tell you, you know, what's going on. You can probably see um, that one of my uh, creations is is going to be in the Thunderbolts film. So right, the century. Uh, there, cool. I said it. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that's pretty cool. And, that is exciting. Uh, you know, I have a little of that. Uh, that's part of my work. Um, there's a there's yeah. a uh, also there's a rumor going around that you might be going back to Wolverine Origin. No, that's not true. No, I'm not going back to Wolverine Origin. I had the story. I have the story, just like the one like All Winners. I had the second origin that I would like to write, and I know what it is, and it's very much my style. I think the real question is, you know, do Marvel and DC want me now, right? Because what I did was work that where I was given a lot of freedom to bring them and resuscitate them sometimes in there as they were coming out of bankruptcy. It helped propel them out of bankruptcy, but that's a lot of creative freedom to tell really core stories, right? Mm-hmm. Will they want that right now? Or is that something different now that they have Disney and you know, that everything is so, you know, there's some stuff going on in those arenas. Absolutely. You know, and, and that'll become evident in the next few months when it's announced. Um, primarily my time is spent um, working on film and animation stuff here. Um, building out my company. Um, We have a couple of projects that are sort of in the works. Um, I actually, and this is, man, this is going to make you guys like shake your heads, right? So you're going (laughs) to now, now after all this goodwill of this interview, you're going to be annoyed at me, right? I'm warning you in advance. All right. What people don't understand about NFTs is that they are a fundamental technology. They are not a medium, right? Mm -hmm. And so I worked in the NFT space knowing that you could do some really cool stuff mm-hmm. and then people appropriated it greedy people and sold glorified jpegs and just ruined any chance that that thing was going to be something mm-hmm. right but that's not what an nft is an nft allows us to do things like this and this maybe would get you a bit more interested because i love new technologies and i think mm-hmm. there are great things that you can do with them right Imagine if you were a baseball card collector and you were fine with collecting digital digital baseball cards, if that was fine with you. So what if you could collect one that basically had the stats for like a great player like uh, Mike Trout, right? And and overnight, as his stats change, his lifetime batting average or whatever it is, your digital card could get that information and update itself. Mm-hmm. And you had provenance over that card. So there were only a thousand of them and the, 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 the cards like backing change. And when he hit certain milestones in his career, now the, the, the card itself, and it would, it would deliver video for you and all those kind of things. And you had one of those, that's a thing worth having. Mm-hmm. That's what NFTs could do. 
Uh, Mike we, Trout we, is a baseball player, Bob. Yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't know that, but I did know NFT. So right. So we didn't do, <laughs> we, we didn't do any of those things. Yeah. So what I could do with an NFT and what I start trying to develop, we did one project that was a treasure hunt all across the entire world, and it was wildly popular. It probably made about two and a half million dollars in about six months, eight months. It was crazy, right? And what you could do is you could go in, follow the clues, use the cards as clues. They would morph in the middle of you owning them. So you get new clues from the same card. You had all kinds of rarities. So you could have this collectible thing, but a community experience with a great story attached to it. That's mm -hmm. what NFTs could be and Web3 could be. I could tell a time travel story in a comic book where you could read the comic book. And then when someone changed the time stream, you could go back to page two and the book had changed. Mm -hmm. Right. What? And so you could do, you could do this really cool stuff and we didn't do any of it. <laughs> it drives me crazy because I want to do that stuff, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I might have to do it in the, in the world of gaming and I'm doing a little bit more video game work right now, but um you know, we have the sky is the limit. We can tell great stories in any medium and we should. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Sounds amazing. So how did we turn it into a bunch of glorified collectible JPEGs that were <laughs> valueless? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oof. You know. So uh, what's the, the best way for, for listeners to, to follow your work? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you find me on you know, the platform formerly known as Twitter, I'm around there at my Paul Jenkins. Uh, I'm not I'm not digging it right now because there seems to be a lot of screaming and yelling on Twitter. So yeah. I'm probably about to migrate to Instagram and then I've got my own personal Facebook page and I might build out my public Facebook page and build it up. Um, I probably can manage about two social medias at a time. <laughs> and and so I think Twitter's about to not be one of them because mm. um, yeah. I just can't handle it. It's too, yeah. too horrible. Yeah, there, certainly you give you give people a, a soapbox and they'll say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Paul, it has been a real pleasure having you on the show and, and thank you for taking us through uh, your career. But but uh, namely, the, those wonderful Captain America stories that uh, that you, you shared with uh, with us. Uh, so thank you for coming on and talking about that. And, and we, we hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah. OK, guys, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. All right. That was a, a great conversation. Uh, very in-depth, uh, very detailed. Uh, love the stories behind stories. Uh, so so great having Paul on the show today. Yeah, you know, I you know I I love talking to creators who um, have a personal connection to the to the stories they write. You know, I mean, they're entertaining, of course, but right. but there's another layer underneath, uh, and another layer underneath that as well. And uh, and I think it's really great uh, when we get an opportunity to hear a little bit what goes into those 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 sub layers of a of a story that we can peel it back like an onion and and get more out of it, even though we've read them and we're familiar with them, but it just allows us to get a little bit more, squeeze a little bit more juice out of that lemon, you know? Yeah. That's a great point about the personal connection to the stories. Um, you know, I, I, you see, you see these uh, creators uh, do dedications to people in, in stories and you always wonder, you know, what was the, the reason behind that? And mm -hmm. um you know, he, he certainly did that for some of these theater war one shots. And uh, it was great to, to kind of find out, you know, uh, what was his connection to those people? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And, and deep connections at that. And, you know, there were some moments, uh, you know, in this conversation where, you know, it's, we got teared up, you know, because they're, they're intensely personal and, and they mean something. And that just, you know, it, it adds 
want to say value because that just sounds sort of monetary, but it just, it makes the stories mean that much more to me and I'm sure to you and, and to our listeners. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, now let's talk about next episode, Bob. Okay. Uh, so technically, because uh, this comes out on January 31st, uh, we've already met. Yeah. Hey, it was awesome. It was great seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> At the uh, uh, original art expo mm -hmm. down in Orlando, I really, Florida. I expected you to wear pants. So that was a little surprising, <laughs> but you know. Uh, I, I, I'm not going <laughs> to touch that, uh, which is something I said the other night. Yeah. Come back next episode because we are going to have uh, a just a, a recap of uh, our time together, meeting uh, Bob and I meeting for the first time, talk about some of the other people we met there, including some creators and uh, and also, you know, maybe some sound bites. Uh, who knows what's in store for the next next episode, but uh, <laughs> it, it'll be it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, he's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Verbonis, and you have been listening to another episode of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast.